Hi, this is Chris Young. Welcome to episode 49 of Contemplating Life. I planned to take a break after episode 48 to relax over the holidays and get caught up on some other things. But I was inspired to write this episode, so I'm releasing it to both Patreon and to the public on Christmas Day as my gift to you. Also, this episode is a bit timely. I'm still going to take a break, and I will return after the first of the year with new episodes. On December 21st, 2023, a few days ago, I did something I'd never done before. I'm embarrassed to admit I'd never done it. It was long overdue. It's something I recommend all Americans do if they care about their country. I'm embarrassed because I consider myself politically active, knowledgeable, and very passionate, especially about elections. I've served as a lobbyist in the Indiana General Assembly, and I helped to secure the passage of a bill that made it easier for disabled people to vote. So I was long overdue to do this. What did I do? On December 21st, 2023, I read the Constitution of the United States. I'd never done it before. I probably read parts of it in various social studies classes in the high school and college. I read parts of it for my own enlightenment as research for blogs and Facebook posts and rants. But this time, I read the whole thing front to back. The preamble, all seven articles, and all 27 amendments. I should have done it 23 years ago because I learned something disturbing in December of 2020. Something that I knew on a subliminal level, but it never really sunk in until that moment. In December 2020, the nation was in turmoil over the 2020 presidential election between Al Gore and George W. Bush. It came down to Florida. Whoever won Florida would become the 43rd president of the United States. Now, there were multiple recounts in various Florida counties and numerous lawsuits. I was glued to the TV for weeks, watching NBC, MSNBC, CNN, and possibly other networks' extensive coverage of the events. During oral arguments in one of the cases, I heard something that greatly upset me. Now, my recollection was it was in the oral arguments before the United States Supreme Court, but I found transcripts of the arguments in the famous Bush v. Gore case, and the thing that I remember wasn't in there. So it must have been an argument in one of the state or county cases. The statement was made, there's no constitutional right to presidential suffrage. In case you're unfamiliar with the term suffrage, it has nothing to do with suffering. Rather, it means the right to cast a vote in an election. Nowhere in the Constitution of the United States does it guarantee that you get to vote for president. Nor do you have a constitutional right to have your vote counted if you do vote. Now, if you know anything about our presidential elections, you know that it's an indirect election. Although names such as Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, 
Mitt Romney, John McCain, or Hillary Clinton might appear on the ballot, you are actually voting for electors to the Electoral College. I found a sample ballot from my home state of Indiana for the 2020 election. In the section for President and Vice President of the United States, it says, a ballot cast for named candidates for President and Vice President of the United States is considered a ballot cast for the slate of presidential electors and alternate presidential electors nominated by that political party or independent candidate, end quote. You are voting for a group of representatives to the Electoral College. You may vote on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, but the actual election for president takes place on the Monday after the second Wednesday of December, voted on by the electors. The votes are then counted on January 6th, as we now all know. While these dates are established by law, the Electoral College system itself comes from Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 of the Constitution. It states, quote, Each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. But no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. End quote. You're voting for people you probably never heard of. You're trusting them to vote for the person who wins the majority of the votes in your state or district. Their names are nowhere on the ballot. You have to look it up somewhere. I couldn't tell you who were the electors from my state in any of the presidential elections in which I voted. I had to look them up on Wikipedia. In 2020, Indiana went for Trump, and I could only recognize one out of the 11 names. Edwin Simcox, who was a former Republican Indiana Secretary of State. I said former, recall, you can't be a current officeholder. Wait a minute. As I was editing this, I noticed that other people on the list were current office holders. Perhaps they were allowed because it was not a federal office. I don't know. Anyway, Simcox was also an elector in 2016. In 2012, Indiana went for Mitt Romney, and I recognized the name of former Governor Eric Holcomb. I thought if I went back to 2008, in which Indiana went for Obama, I might recognize more names since I'm a Democrat. But I didn't recognize any of those. The important part of that section of the Constitution is the phrase, quote, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, end quote. That means that each state can choose its electors by any means it wants. Currently, Indiana awards all 11 of its electoral votes to whoever wins the popular vote in the state, as do most states. But historically, 
that method has varied greatly from state to state, and to some extent, it still does vary. When the Constitution took effect in 1789, this at-large popular vote winner-take-all method began with Pennsylvania and Maryland. That same year, Massachusetts, Virginia, and Delaware used a district-by-district plan of popular vote. However, in five other states, the state legislatures chose their electors with no voter input whatsoever. That was Connecticut, Georgia, New Hampshire, New Jersey, and South Carolina. Notably, New York, North Carolina, and Rhode Island did not participate in the election. New York's legislature deadlocked and abstained from voting, and North Carolina and Rhode Island had not yet ratified the Constitution. By 1800, Virginia and Rhode Island voted at large. Kentucky, Maryland, and North Carolina voted by district, and 11 states voted by state legislature. Beginning in 1804, there was a definite trend towards the winner-take-all system for the statewide popular vote. In 1832, only South Carolina continued to choose its electors by the legislative branch, and it abandoned the method after 1860. Maryland was the only state using a district-by-district plan, and from 1836, district plans fell out of use until the 20th century, although Michigan used a district plan for 1892 only. States using the popular vote by district have included 10 different states from all regions of the country. Since 1836, statewide winner-take-all popular vote for electors has been the almost universal practice. Currently, two states, Maine since 1972 and Nebraska since 1996, use a district plan with two at-large electors assigned to support the winner of the statewide popular vote. I've always felt that the winner-take-all method of allocating electors was unfair because I'm a Democrat in a predominantly Republican state. Consider this. During my lifetime, my home state of Indiana has gone for 15 Republicans and only two Democrats. Since I was able to vote beginning in 1976, Indiana has voted for Republicans 11 times and Democrats only once. Specifically, in my lifetime, Indiana voted for Eisenhower in 56, Nixon in 60, Johnson in 64, Nixon again in 68 and 72, Ford in 76, Reagan in 80 and 84, Bush 41 in 88 and 92, Dole in 96, Bush 43 in 2000 and 2004, Obama in 08, Romney in 12, and Trump in 16 and 20. Indiana voted for the winners in 11 out of 17 presidential elections in my lifetime. Only in 2008, when Obama won, did my vote actually contribute to the eventual winner. In the 2000 election, Al Gore 
won the popular vote, but not the electoral vote. The Supreme Court halted all of the recounts in Florida because they said that the various recount methods used by different counties violated equal protection under the law. That's a decision that even some conservative Republicans thought was poorly decided, even though it handed the presidency to their guy. At the time, many pundits said, this shows you just how much every vote matters. Bullshit. Nothing could have been further from the truth. If we'd had a direct election of the president, my votes for Al Gore and later for Hillary Clinton would have contributed to their wins. But because I live in a predominantly Republican state, my vote has contributed to the eventual outcome only once. I believed that after the 2000 election debacle, there would be a big push to amend the Constitution and get rid of the Electoral College altogether. But there was barely a whisper suggesting that should happen. After Trump lost the popular vote in 2016, but won the electoral vote, I again expected Democrats to push to abolish the Electoral College. While there were some rumblings along those lines, there was no major movement to attempt to do that. Twice now, Democrat candidates in my lifetime who have won the popular vote have lost the electoral vote. Now, there have been multiple attempts to reform or repeal the Electoral College system, one of which was proposed by Indiana Senator Birch Pye, who we talked about in a previous episode of this podcast. See the Wikipedia article I've linked, which describes those efforts. I think the parties are reluctant to change the system because it means you would have to campaign in all 50 states. With this current system, we have a certain number of states that are solidly blue Democrat and others that are solidly red Republican. So you only have to focus on the so-called purple states that could go either way. The bottom line is, here in Indiana, my vote doesn't count. And if you're a Republican in a prominently Democrat state, like New York, Massachusetts, or California, your vote doesn't count either. But the most disturbing part is the way the Constitution is written, your vote doesn't have to count anywhere, anytime, regardless of which party you prefer or which party dominates your state. You have no constitutional right to vote for president. While each of the 50 states currently holds elections to determine who the electors will be, there is no guarantee that those electors will actually vote for who they said they were pledged for. These are so-called faithless electors. According to Wikipedia, in 59 elections, 165 electors did not cast a vote for president or vice president as they were supposed to do. Now, of these, 71 electors changed their votes because the candidate to whom they were pledged died before the electoral ballot. So that's understandable. One elector chose to abstain from voting for any candidate. 
as a protest. 93 were typically changed by the elector's personal preference, although there may have been some instances where the change was caused by an honest mistake. For example, one elector wrote down John Edwards for president when Edwards was actually running for vice president, and he also misspelled Edwards' name. See the Wikipedia article on faithless electors that I've linked in the description for details of these situations. In 2016, some people suggested that the responsible thing for the Republican electors to do was to ignore that Trump had secured enough electoral votes and that they should go rogue and pick a different candidate for the good of the country and the good of the Republican Party. Now, of course, most of those suggestions were being made by Democrats. Although that was a partisan suggestion, it wasn't entirely out of line. The original idea behind the Electoral College was that the uneducated masses should not be trusted with such an important decision. Instead, you would choose learned men to make that decision for you. This would insulate us from a populist candidate who could persuade the average voter, but who was otherwise unqualified to hold office. According to Wikipedia, as of 2020, 33 states and the District of Columbia have laws that require electors to vote for the candidates for whom they pledge to vote. Although in half these jurisdictions, there is no enforcement mechanism. In 14 states, votes contrary to the pledge are voided and the respective electors are replaced. And in two of the states, they may also be fined. Three other states impose a penalty on faithless electors, but they still count the votes as cast. In July 2020, the Supreme Court ruled that states could penalize faithless electors if they wanted to, but it didn't outlaw faithless electors. It is constitutionally valid for any of the winning electors to vote for whomever they want for president or to abstain from voting altogether. Now, one of the reasons I bring up this entire topic is that many states are enacting laws that make it more difficult for people to vote. Also, some proposals would allow states to throw out an entire election if it didn't go in favor of the ruling state party's candidate. If you live in a state with a Republican-controlled legislature and governor, but somehow the Democrat candidate wins the popular vote in that state, they could throw out the election and appoint electors for the Republican candidate. And to be fair, the opposite could happen. If a Republican candidate wins in a Democrat-controlled state, theoretically they could throw out those results and submit Democrat electors. Now, honestly, that's much less likely to happen on the Democrat side than it is on the Republican side. Then again, if Trump wins in 2024, God only knows what the Democrats might do to prevent him from returning to office. Of particular importance are the state secretaries of state who are typically in charge of elections. 
For example, Trump tried to persuade the Georgia Republican Secretary of State to find him more votes. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. The Republican official refused to cooperate or give in to that pressure. And Trump is currently under indictment in Georgia for attempting to subvert the Georgia presidential election results. One of the reasons I decided I should read the entire Constitution is that the day before, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that Donald Trump was ineligible to be president because he participated in an insurrection against the United States, culminating in the events of January 6, 2021. This was based on the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which states, quote, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such a disability. End quote. This amendment was passed after the Civil War to prevent former Confederate officials from holding office. The New York Times reports that lawsuits have been filed in 16 states to attempt to stop Trump from being on the ballot based on the 14th Amendment prohibition against insurrectionists. I've provided a link to an independent website that is tracking these cases. Some of the cases have been dismissed because the 14th Amendment doesn't specifically list the president. It mentions senators, representatives, electors, and those who hold any office, civil or military, and who have taken an oath as a member of Congress or as any officer of the United States to support the Constitution. The lower court in Colorado had ruled that the president was not specifically listed, and therefore it did not apply to him. It specifically lists senators, representatives, and electors and it does list officer of the United States. The Colorado Supreme Court decision that overturned the lower Colorado court says obviously the president is an officer because the Constitution refers to the office of president 25 times. In contrast, congresspersons are not officers, they are members. So that's why they and electors who cannot be officers, are listed specifically. This case will undoubtedly be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Trump has until January 5th to do so. 
from what I hear, the Colorado decision was extremely well-crafted in a manner that the conservative justices should appreciate. They have frequently argued that the Constitution should be strictly interpreted in a way that the words mean what they say and you should use the meaning of the words as they were understood when the article was drafted. The Colorado decision does exactly that, citing dictionaries published at the time it was written post-Civil War. The decision also cites various debates that went on during the adoption of the amendment in an attempt to understand the original intent of the amendment. That should satisfy the originalists on the Supreme Court. My guess, as a non-expert, is that the Supreme Court decision will boil down to whether or not they believe Trump's activities constituted insurrection. Yet the Colorado decision notes that when the amendment had been applied previously, it did not require that the subject actually be convicted of a crime. And as to the question of whether or not his speech at the Ellipse rally constituted incitement of a riot, the Colorado decision cites Trump's refusal to call office supporters as well as praising them for the actions as giving aid or comfort to the enemies of the Constitution. His refusal to bring in the National Guard also constituted support to the insurrectionists. So even if he didn't personally participate in their insurrection, his activities to organize the event and his inaction to stop the event counted under the 14th Amendment, according to the Colorado court. Now, critics of the Colorado decision say that an unelected judiciary is robbing the voters of their ability to vote for the candidate of their choice. The counter-argument is that this ineligibility provision is no different than the requirement that the president must be at least 35 years of age and a natural-born citizen of the United States. The 14th Amendment was ratified by the elected Congress and the state legislatures at the time. It is as much of the Constitution as any other provision. We, the people, chose these rules. If you don't like it, repeal the 14th Amendment. Whatever happens in the weeks ahead, or has happened by the time you hear this podcast, it's clear that we're on the verge of a major constitutional crisis, the likes of which we've never seen in our entire history. Our current system is inherently unfair. Many have argued it was designed to give inordinate power to smaller states in an attempt to preserve slavery as an institution. The bottom line is the Constitution does not guarantee your ability to vote for president. And that could be taken away from you at the whim of either party. At the drop of a hat, your state could decide to go back to the system where the state legislature appoints electors, possibly even after the election had taken place. Such action would be perfectly constitutional. Historically, they've done it that way before, 
and they could do it again. I have not heard any candidates from either party for any major office, such as president, vice president, or congress, call for the repeal or reform of their current electoral college system. No matter what your political affiliation is, if you value your vote, you should speak up and demand that the Constitution be amended to allow for a direct election of the president. Now, that's a lengthy and difficult process. In the interim, you should be calling for your state to allocate its electors on a district-by-district basis. There's historical precedents for that, and it would lie within the state's power to do so. Changing to a district-by-district allocation of electoral votes would mean that in a predominantly Democrat urban district in Indiana, where I live in an otherwise Republican state, my vote would count. And in a rural district of a mostly Democratic state, it's more likely that Republican votes would count. Allocating electoral votes based on districts is not as fair as a direct election, but at least it's a step in the right direction. It's a step that Maine and Nebraska have already taken. By the way, while I was reading the Constitution, I found other interesting provisions of which I was unaware. Perhaps in a future episode, we'll review some of those. One final thought about the Constitution. Let's consider the words of the preamble. Quote, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. End quote. It's popular to complain about the government as if it were some separate entity. But the first three words of the preamble say it all. We the people. We are the government. We elect our representatives, and we must hold them accountable to do what's right for the country. If we don't like it, vote them out. If we don't like the Constitution, amend it. Also consider the phrase, in order to form a more perfect union. We've always recognized that our form of government is imperfect. However, a representative democracy is still the best form of government. While it might be nice to have a powerful leader or a group of leaders who have absolute authority to fix everything, that would put us at their mercy. Democracy is the only form of government that can guarantee your rights because you are the government. No one rules you. That is, unless you let them. You have to be politically aware. Think critically. Think for yourself. Respect others. And join together to solve our problems. If the government doesn't work, it's our fault.
because the government is constituted by we the people. After all of my political rants, I like to quote political comedian Dennis Miller, as he used to say at the end of his weekly HBO program. Hey, that's just my opinion. I could be wrong. May you have a very Merry Christmas and a blessed and safe New Year. When I return after the break, I'll have one more political rant about social media, and then we return to our regularly scheduled podcasts where I reminisce about my college days. I finally get deeper into computer programming classes, and I develop new friendships that have lasted for decades. If you find this podcast educational, entertaining, enlightening, or even inspiring, consider sponsoring me on Patreon for just $5 a month. Many thanks to my financial supporters. Your support pays for the writing, seminar, attend, and many other things. But most of all, it shows how much you care and appreciate what I'm doing. Your support means more to me than I could ever express. Even if you can't provide financial support, please post links and share the podcast. I just want to grow my audience. All of my back episodes are available, so check them out if you're new to the group. If you have any comments, questions, or other feedback, please feel free to comment on any of the platforms where you find the podcast. Again, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I'll see you next year as we continue contemplating life. Until then, fly safe, everyone. <laughs>